0: The Bane free radio hour.
1: On the podcast, Purple Mountains, Yellow Rivers, the Green Gas of Home. It could only be Ganymede, vacation there soon. Plus we continue with the complete audiobook serialization of Larry Korea's Son of the Black Sword. All right now. Welcome to the Bane Free Radio Hour podcast. It's an honor to have you along. I'm Bain Senior Editor Tony Daniel. This time we talk with J.J. Cragen, who is the 2019 Bane Fantasy Adventure Award Grand Prize winner. We gave the nice crystalline statuette to Josh at SpikeCon in Utah last month and next, we'll send him a nice non crystalline check for the publication of his story at professional rates at the Bain.com website. The story can be found at Bain.com and also in the free ebook download, Free Stories 2019, which is downloadable at Bain.com. Treason Properly is truly a wonderful little high fantasy tale with knights, flintlocks, and a clash with the undead, and we'll talk with J.J. Cragen about it. And we continue with the complete audiobook serialization of Larry Correa's great high fantasy novel, Son of the Black Sword. Now here's the news. (music) The August hardcovers have arrived at booksellers everywhere. Out now is Monster Hunter Guardian by Larry Correa and Sarah A. Hoyt. While the Monster Hunter International crew are called away on a rescue mission, Julie Shackelford is left behind to hold down the fort and care for her newborn son. Julie's devoted to the little guy, but the slow pace of maternity leave is getting to her. But when a field called brings her face to face with an unspeakable evil, she'll get even more excitement than she ever hoped for. Also out in hardcover in August is Witchy Kingdom by D.J. Butler. An encounter with her father's goddess has not turned out to be the end for Sarah Penn. Now, with the imperial fist tightened around her city of Cahokia, she must find a way to access the power of the serpent throne itself a feat that her father never did manage to accomplish. But Sarah is made of very tough stuff. Finally, out now in original trade paperback is Terra Nova, The Wars of Liberation, edited by Tom Cratman. In Terra Nova, we have the collected tales of the history of mankind's first colony, from the first failed attempt at colonization, to the rise in crime, to the rise in terrorism, to its descent into civil war and rebellion, and ultimately... Liberation. Terranova, The Wars of Liberation edited by Tom Crapman with a host of really great writers contributing stories, Witchy Kingdom by D.J. Butler, and Monster Hunter Guardian by Larry Correa and Sarah A. Hoyt are now available at booksellers everywhere.
2: I want to welcome J.J. Cragen to the podcast. Hey, Josh, how's it going?
3: Good, man. How you doing?
2: We're doing all right. You are out in Utah, uh, as I understand. What what part of Utah are you from?
3: Morgan, a little tiny town about an hour saw, uh, north of Salt Lake.
2: Oh, yeah. Um, that's up there where uh, Steve uh, uh, and Larry lives up there, too, nearby. Yeah.
3: yeah, In that direction, Larry Correa. Right Morgan. He's the big celebrity that moved in. But he's, he's the <laughs> interloper. I've been here my whole life. He's... I see. So.
2: Outsider, huh? Yeah.
3: So, um well
2: you um JJ Cragen is the winner of the uh, is the sixth annual Bane Fantasy Adventure Award. This this award recognizes the best original adventure fantasy short story in the style of fantasy greats like Larry Correa, who's your neighbor now. Uh, Mercedes nope. Lackey, Elizabeth Moon, Andre Norton, J.R.R. Tolkien, and David Weber. Um and we've been oh, giving this out every year. Part. There are, and you're among them now. Well they didn't win the award, but there are <laughs> uh there are load stars. Um we've been giving this as sort of a counterpart to our, our Jim Bain um science fiction story award, which we've been giving for for over uh ten for over a decade now as well. So it's a. This is the fantasy side of uh, of things, um, and I was on the uh, I was on the selection committee for this year, as I have been on all of them. And uh, man, when this story oh, yeah. when I read your story, uh, Josh, it was like this is the one. I could probably stop here, but I didn't, of course. But uh, uh, <laughs> read them all, but but, uh, but that, I thought this one was oh. uh, yeah, just keep, our keep best read nice like that. Part. That's cool. Yeah, yeah. So, um, what was uh, so you, you tell us, uh, walk us through a little bit about finding out that you, that you won. I think Jim emailed you, um, Jim Menz. And then, uh, and tell us about how the uh, convention went. We presented this award at SpikeCon, which was out in your neck of the woods, right?
3: Yeah, luckily enough, it was like 12 minutes away, and just over the mountains in Leighton, which is pretty, uh, pretty awesome. Um, yeah, I got, uh, I, I, I knew what day, uh, they were announcing the 10 finalists. They, cause you guys had announced that in the contest rules. So I was just getting ready to work for work that morning, uh, checked my phone as I was about to walk out the door and, and I was expecting to see the finalists announced, but I got a email from Jim Frickin mint himself saying, Hey, it's my distinct pleasure to, to inform you. You're the grand prize winner. That was pretty surreal moment that's pretty sweet
2: yeah that's cool and yeah i uh i guess i was cc'd on that so i you, you wrote back very excited <laughs> so um that it's really i mean we got entries from all over the world so it, it's not like we were trying to center in on somebody that was going to be near the convention you just happened to be there it's uh uh, coincidence. Yeah,
3: that thought did go through my mind. I mean, I'm a bit just desperate to get a schlub here to get a photo up, but I'm a pretty <laughs> ugly dude, so that's clearly not the case. So, yeah, well, I don't how, know. How many people, you, uh, how many people entered the contest?
2: Um, a couple I think we had over uh, two, two, three hundred. So um this year, so. Oh. But, but um, that picture of you and and Larry is a is a contest to see who's most bald. That's true.
3: <laughs> not cool, Tony. Not cool, man. I don't
2: know. No, that, I think Larry's
3: still was really. I did not win because because Jim wanted to stand <laughs> behind me with Larry. That just didn't feel right. Yeah. that was a really awkward picture. You know, you don't stand in front of Jim Mintz and Larry Korea. That was weird. But I didn't know what to think of that
2: yeah well, um, it's a fine picture so uh so how did Spicon go what um that was the ceremony and everything?
3: Spycon blew my mind. It was really cool i've I've been to writing conferences before, but nothing like this one and the uh, The crazy thing is I walked in the door and I immediately saw a bunch of people walking around in military uniforms. I had no idea that uh, David Weber was so powerful. He had his own private Navy, the Royal Manticore Navy. It blew my mind, That's right. And yeah, so so the con itself was really cool. There was huge names because cause this was a confluence of four different cons. So Jim Butcher was there and Laurel K. Hamilton. Brandon Sanderson's made an appearance. This was This is crazy. These are like all my favorite writers all at one conference. Um, Because Jim had asked me if, I mean, he asked me if I could come and accept the award. And of course I was going to come, but I was going to the conference anyway. Because, you know, look who's who's there. So the conference itself was just incredible. The the panels that I got to listen and talk about writing fiction, it, it was pretty stellar. So I can't say enough good things about the conference. It was really cool.
2: Cool. Well, what did um, – so tell us a little bit about your background. Um, how did you get uh, – it sounds like you've been writing for a while trying to um, um, break in and such. I don't know. If, have you uh, published elsewhere? What's? I'm, I'm sorry I don't know no, your that background that well.
3: There's nothing to know, dude. I'm a, I'm a middle-aged white guy from Utah. There's not a lot of really interesting things to say. I'm a pretty boring fellow.
2: Um, well, how did you, I mean, have you, have you done some, uh, you got a writing group? How did you, um, have you been going about it? Um, uh, cause you got good.
3: Uh, just, on, just on on Facebook, there's, I belong to a big writing group that, uh, and I think that's how I actually found out about the Bain Award. I've been reading Bain books for, you know, since I was a kid, but I think three or four years ago, somebody posted, I think it was the Jim Bain Memorial Award. Somebody posted in that Facebook writing group, Hey, This would be cool. If you won this, sign up for this. So that's how I started following the awards. Um, I think two years ago I actually submitted to that one, but it was a really crappy story because I wrote it just for that award. It it wasn't very good. Um, But then I had this other idea for a whole book, and I realized the first chapter would make a really cool short story. Uh, so that's why I decided to, to submit to the Fantasy Award. It, uh, and I think that's why it, it worked. I don't want to say how amazing my story was. I'll let you do that. You did that pretty well. But, uh, you know, I think it worked because it was written for a book. The characters had some background and stuff. So that's that's
2: how that Yeah, that's a real... Yeah, there's a real feel of of world building behind this. The story that you that you do a real good job of just dolloping in and not not um not dropping too much. Uh, well tell us a little bit about let's talk about Treason Properly, which is the name of the story. Treason Properly is right now available at the com website. Will be through the end of um through the middle of September. And um it will then go into our Free Stories twenty nineteen ebook uh collection. So it'll be perpetually available to download. Of course you can sell it elsewhere if you want to. We just have first serial rights. But um uh and it and it might be the the beginning of a of a novel one of these days, right. So uh tell us a little bit about the uh the idea and the inception, how you how you um Came about writing this story. It's really a high fantasy story, but it's got a real nice blend of um, of technology beyond the medieval, right?
3: Yeah, up, up to like gunpowder. I'd call it gunpowder fantasy. Um, yeah, so so I hope there's not like a bunch of jocks listening in that are going to come to my house and beat me up for being a super geek here when I tell you how this came to be. But um, where the the core of the story came from I was playing a video game like a, a uh um, a strategy warfare game and I started role playing or like peon soldiers on the battlefield I don't know why cuz I'm a super nerd um, and and I kept having really cool cool things happen when I'd role play what when you know when the computer was doing weird things um, and so I started writing them down, and it gave me a bunch of really cool uh, ideas for this this world and for this story. Um, so I kind of role-played the general who became Prince Jagard, and uh, I role-played just this little peon in my head that was conscripted into the, the army, and he became Briggs, the main character, um, and it just kind of rolled out from there. Uh, so, so doing two of the nerdiest things possible—playing video game and role-playing at the same time—that's kind of how this came to be. And uh, for a long time, I I'd, I'd wanted to write uh, a, a specific character. I'm not going to say what it what it is because it's what uh, um, Briggs becomes. So I kind of combined that with this really nerdy thing I was doing, and that's where the story came from.
2: Yeah. Well, Briggs is really—I mean the the. The thing about him is that he is competent. He really knows what he's doing. Um, do you have any kind of uh, background with shooting black, black powder rifles, or did, is it research that uh, led to this feeling of, of completeness in the character? That's an interesting
3: question. I have never once in my life shot black powder. I shoot a lot of – I like to shoot, um, and I've shot a lot of other – you a know, bunch of other guns, but I've never actually shot black powder, so I did have to do a lot of research on – on uh you know exactly how how those work' because there's different styles of black powder rifles some have rifling, some don't um and I had to find the specific thing that I was looking for for the story. I needed mean, an accurate rifle, but single shot um so no, I had to do some research on that uh but I've never shot black powder weird weirdly enough
2: yeah well i mean you well, you're a shooter also, so you you have some experience and um the uh, it, it really Briggs has this feel to me of the uh, of the Richard Sharp character in those Bernard Cornwell books or Bernard Cornwell books, um, it, who is also a just a you know a phenomenally good uh, rifleman. Uh, have you ever, is that an influence of any kind or?
3: Um, not those books. Um, they're there are some Ellie Modicetti books that I read years ago. I don't remember what they're called. Um, but he had uh, his character, he had like psionic powers. He could control the trajectory of bullets with his mind, but he had single shot rifles. And that was probably where I really started thinking about how a, a powder fantasy would be cool. That was 15, maybe 20 years ago where I read those books. Um, but... Uh, but mostly, it came from just role playing that stupid video game. To be honest with you, <laughs> and, and, well, so and tell I've me. always been fascinated with with uh, like Revolutionary War uh, type warfare, the line infantry where they just line up across from each other and just start shooting each other. The the psychology of that has always just boggled my mind. I've always been fascinated with that kind of warfare of the what you would have to be thinking to do that. I'm You know, know, I've never been to war or anything like that. I'm a poser when it comes to this kind of thing. So it's always fascinated me. So there's a lot of that into it as well. Well, not
2: a whole lot of anybody has lined up and (laughs) (laughs) and shot at each other with a rifle. I guess
3: they have done that once playing paintball. We did that playing paintball one time where we lined up and we could only shoot our – we had to load the guns. One at a time, and that was scary, and those are just stupid paintballs, but yeah, point taken had, uh, not too many red color yeah. here.
2: yeah, well, what is um it, so tell us set us up the beginning of the story, so we got Briggs, and we got this his his young assistant sort of or or another rifleman who's much younger than him named Eric or Eric. Yep. Um, what's going on here how does he what is how does he find himself on this hillside? They've, it's
3: not a good situation. They've just lost a uh, lost the battle. Their entire regiment has been wiped out, almost to the last man. They're the only two left, and they've they've kind of cleared the battlefield around them. Um, but they know that there's more more of these undead beasts down down this ravine. That they're they're standing on top of this hillside up a draw. And they know that there's more bad guys down there that will be coming. But their entire regiment of 500 men have just been wiped out in kind of a surprise attack. And that's the beginning of the book, as they kill the last, the last two beasts that are trying to kill them. Um, so they realize they need to get out of there. Uh, they they can't hold this pass. They need to get back and and tell Army Command that the pass has been lost. But they're in a pretty dire situation. They can't outrun these. Undead beastmen. They know we're going to be coming after them. So that's how it starts.
2: Hopefully, that. So, tell us a little bit different. about the the bad guys for for a moment before. Uh, who are these beastmen, and what is the who's the bad guys?
3: Uh so so the main bad guy's name is Tetrax the Betrayer. Uh, betrayal is kind of the worst thing you can do to somebody. So. I wanted to make him a betrayer. He betrayed the, uh, and I don't know how much I, don't remember how much I went into that. He betrayed the prince's uh, grandfather. He was he was uh, an advisor, uh, uh, and a close friend of the the former king, um, and he betrayed the king and revealed he had these necromantic powers. And basically nearly destroyed the the kingdom of Shane in one fell swoop when he betrayed the king to a, a rival army, and uh most of the the Shane army was destroyed so the intervening years the, this necromancer has been uh gaining power and and uh conquering neighbor neighboring races and and kingdoms building his undead army and and these beast men they introduced their uh there were some of these peaceful tribes of beastmen that lived to the west of Shane, and this uh, Tetrax had taken his army over there, and since these beastmen couldn't unite to fight him, they were very tribal, he killed them all and put them into his undead army, and now he's now he's marching on Shane, so it's kind of a dire situation. They're beset on a couple fronts from from this undead horde.
2: So Briggs and Eric cannot outrun these guys, and but what they want to do is warn somebody that they're coming, right?
3: Yeah. So, so their regiment was set to guard this mountain pass, and the mountain pass kind of, you know, it guards, you know, the farmland, the heart of the kingdom of Shane. So if these these undead armies come pouring out of this mountain pass, they're just going to slaughter. Anybody they find, and there's a whole bunch of defenseless farm folk and stuff down down in the valley. Um, so they know it's quite important that they get to the the nearest fort, uh, which kind of guards a different way into the valley, uh, to get some reinforcements up up there to to prevent that from happening. They, you know, and, and aside from that, that's the altruic uh, altruistic motivation. They just want to get out of there. They don't want to die. Um, they they know they're kind of trapped up in this narrow mountain pass. Uh, they they want to get out of there, but they don't know how far behind them the these undead are. Uh, it's kind of an uncertain situation.
2: Yeah, there's a lot of I mean, they they you got that droll humor of dark humor of the uh, of of these guys down really well. In the way that they talk to each other, um, they kind of know they're doomed, but they're still keeping up a, a lively banner to keep the possibility of survival um, in their minds, right?
3: I think that kind of goes back to the psychology of of being in actual battle, of being in a situation like that. Uh, you know, wouldn't your two choices be to be overwhelmed by the gravity of that situation, or to to find some Some humor in it so you could stay sane. So I I tried to, you know, I just tried to be funny, but I tried to make it appropriate for the situation. So it has to be dark humor because literally everybody that these guys have been, have known for the past year as they've been in the army has just died. So it's a pretty terrible situation. And in my mind, that's how you'd have to stay sane in that situation, wouldn't it? I I don't know. That's just me pretending like I know. But that, yeah, yeah, that was the idea. Kind of a droll dark gallows humor. Yeah,
2: it really works well. Um and, and they it makes the characters come alive. Uh so lo and behold, it couldn't get worse, but it does get worse because um who should show up but um one of the eleven <laughs> who is this guy, Richtus. What's what's his deal?
3: Um uh, Dragonlance is his deal. You, you read the old Dragonlance books with the the Death Knights, Lord Soth? Oh, no, sure. Um, yeah, everybody's read those, and everybody thought the Death Knights or whatever they were called, they were the frickin' coolest things ever. You know, I grew up, I was reading about Death Knights when I was eight years old. So that's probably his deal, is I've just always had that idea of these deathly Dark Knights in my head, because it's such a cool idea. So, uh, unashamedly, probably stole a lot of that from from uh, Weiss and Hickman. Um, yeah, the the Death Knights—they were the eleven personal bodyguards of King Sirius Shane, the, the former king—and um, they all sacrificed themselves during this battle of the betrayal betrayer to uh, get uh, the king and his and his children out of out of harm's way. So they all stayed to fight Petrax, and they were all killed to a to a man. And then largely to spite serious Shane, um, Tetrax raised these eleven, also because they were really skilled warriors, um, and knew you know knew the kingdom of Shane, but but largely just to spite the king, he raised these eleven and made them his, his general, the generals of his army. So they're these real scary, hard to kill uh dread knights. But uh they they each have a necromantic necromantic ability to control these undead creatures that Tetrax raises and fuses and together. So that's the story of these these dread knights they're just my version of VogueSoft I guess. I don't know if I can say that. Yeah. Is there copyright problems? Well
2: that? And, and, and,
3: <laughs> and straight out of talking to of course. But the, exactly, the, a lot of people have done it.
2: Hey, fantasy is not about <laughs> recreating the wheel; it's about how you do it, and you do it very well. You do exactly. it. it's a really nice take on that um, on that traditional. That's the reason we liked it so much.
3: So the, the I mean, it's, it's undead. How many billions of people have written stories about undead? It's, it's kind of hard to to make that kind of new and original, but it's still. It's fascinating, so that's why we keep reading it.
2: Exactly, and sort of metaphorical in a way. Um, So uh, there's a bit of luck. We're still at the beginning of the story. We're not giving a bunch of spoilers away here or anything. Um, We're still very close to the beginning. There's a bit of luck that is random and kind of cool in that they run into a way out that might save them, um, which is uh, a horse. Mm Mm-hmm. And uh, this is, is that going to let them go faster than the beast man? Is that the?
3: Yeah, yeah. The horses are because these beast men are mostly bipedal. They're faster than humans, and they don't really tire like humans. But they don't outrun a horse. So yeah, the, that, that's the idea. That this horse is salvation. They they'll be able to outrun anything that's chasing them. Well, most of the things that they that would be chasing them. Yeah.
2: So this is like this is like your perfect little twist. All right, you know we're saved, and then along comes duty, um, and the feeling. Oh no, we've got something else to do as soldiers. Um, when they mm-hmm.
3: spot have some these two there. guys, yeah,
2: yeah, um, and this is the the heart of the story, which we probably shouldn't go into a great deal more. But um, they spot these two uh, two knights, and um, they have the means to help them. And so tell us a little bit about what's what's going on there.
3: Well I I tried to create there's, there's kind of three different conflicts, and maybe even four. Okay, there's a the self sense of self preservation. These these two two young men have just been through a terrible battle and they they're done. They don't want to do this anymore. They want to get out of there. That's kind of the first conflict. The second would be they know they still need to warn command that the pass has fallen. Um and that's probably their highest duty. They they need to get out of there and they have a horse, they can do it now. Um but then the, the third conflict is there's these two brave knights down there that are about to be killed by some undead in this dread knight. Should we save him? You, you know, we're we're probably dooming ourselves if we try to help them. Um our highest duty should probably be to ride off on this horse and abandon these two men and go warn command and save ourselves. But, you know, what's the right thing to do in that situation? So I love conflicts like that because what is the right thing to do in that situation? Uh, I don't know. And I know what they chose, but I don't know what the right thing to do in that situation is. That's kind of a tough conflict. That was the core of the story right there. I wanted I wanted the main character to have a tough conflict in Chapter well, chapter one of the book, but, you know, in the short story. That's why I realized it would make a good short story.
2: Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, they uh, the tale of the shooting um, skill of, of Briggs is, is also a lot of fun because he's trying to figure out – he's presented with a series of problems. Um, of He's got one shot. And he's got to save these two guys, and they're being attacked by a bunch of different um, creatures. So he's got to think qu- quickly, rapidly, and sort of do a puzzle in his head while still b- maintaining um, great accuracy.
3: Right? And, and not hit either of the two knights engaged in melee combat. Yeah. It's kind of a tall order.
2: It's fun. To, uh, his
3: competence
2: and, and ability comes across, and, and also his um, this sort of because his assistant is loading as fast as he can, and um, the limitations of the technology come into play. Right? The, uh, tell us how the the guns work, uh,
3: as far as how you would
2: keep uh, well, up yeah, a, a I mean, fire
3: like if that. He, if he had an assault rifle, it wouldn't be much of a story. He, you know, it doesn't add to any of the tension. So. So these old old school carbines, they are rifled, so you can shoot fairly accurately, but they're they're still shooting balls, right? Um, so you have to load them, you know, breech load one at a time. Uh, they're not cartridges. Uh, you got to put the powder in. You got to load in the right sequence, or it's not going to work, or blow up in your hands. So that that all adds tension to the story, because you know, guns are guns are cool, but when you get really advanced guns. Uh, the bad guys need to be just as advanced or it's kind of kind of silly um so yeah, they're just single shot rifles they they're real skilled skilled uh riflemen could load it in 25, 30 seconds um, but you know that's a whole other thing when you're when somebody's about to kill you and you're trying to steadily load it goes back to the revolutionary War kind of thing and watching movies like Glory. Where you you're in the middle of a battle and you're trying to have steady hands and load this awkward long rifle and there's bullets whizzing past your head and people trying to stab you with bayonets it's it's really a weird psychological place to be I got to imagine so I, that that's kind of the my impetus for putting that in the story it. it uh, the psychology of of firing that really archaic firearm in the midst of a battle when things are trying to smash you with clubs and stab you with spears. It would would be weird, right? Very weird. Yeah,
2: yeah. Yeah, There's a certain kind of calm you must maintain. Um, And, you know, it's, it's fun to imagine... As, uh, as a reader that you might be able to do that, or at least you can participate in the mind of somebody that could do that, you know, in a story, at least, even if you know you'd fall apart. So, uh,
3: and it really comes across as yeah. a story. Yeah. So sure. Well, the, um, With the intent we, Go ahead. Go, go ahead.
2: Well, the um, we don't want to get too much into the the final working out of the story, which is really fun uh, because it's not the end of the story, um, just the, this battle, and um, uh, several other things happen, and some some more existential choices have to be made by um, by Briggs and Eric and um, and and one of those nights, um, what and that and which is. Part of the reason for the title. So, uh, and, and so we encourage everyone to to come and read that thing. So, what are you um, what are you gonna make out of this? Where are you going to uh, finish this book? Or are you working on it?
3: Yeah, that's actually my current work in progress. I I have the rough outline for a trilogy actually, um, and I have the end to book three all all figured out, and it's uh, appropriately horrific for Bane, I think. Uh, it's kind of a tragic, triumphal ending. Um, yeah, it's. I'm really fascinated with the with the whole idea. I have a bunch of cool writing problems, like I said earlier, from playing that stupid game. A um, bunch of cool cool different interactions with the undead and with some of the other races that I'm building into the world. But, you know, building a world like this is freaking a lot of work. I just started writing a map this week, and kind of crazy everything that has to go into this for it to actually make sense uh one, one of the things i'm really worried about is you know the the last season of game of thrones how you know you'd have a dragon at the bottom of the continent and then suddenly the next day is at the top of the continent there's some weird continuity issues with travel and you know I'd, I'd, I'd really be terrible if that's what ruined the book so i'm trying to trying to do the world building right which is kind of new it's not i haven't ever written Something to this scale before, so it's been pretty fun, it's been really cool. But yeah, that's that's the plan. We're trying to turn this into a trilogy, maybe something longer after that. Yeah. Split.
2: Um, are you uh, are you working on anything else? Do you write science fiction as well?
3: Uh so uh, really, really love urban fantasy. That's kind of where I, I've made my bones. So I have a, a trilogy that I've written. Um. Uh, it's about uh these oh so, so the how it starts this guy named uh Whitaker um finds that he's been accused of kidnapping a, a voodoo goddess, actually. And uh, he's on the run from what are called the regulators, which are kinda half bounty hunter, half wild west lawmen in the supernatural world. They kinda keep the peace and they're they're trying to run him down because he's been accused of kidnapping a goddess. Um, so it's kind of my take on urban fantasy. and it's, But that's probably what I'm most passionate about. It's been a really fun series. So I've written that. I haven't really done anything with it. I actually just submitted it to Bain. So I'm quite hopeful that I get another triumphal email from Jim Mintz. That would be cool. Uh, so, you know, put a good word in for me there, Tony. Um but you know I love all science fiction. I I have half of a of a space sci-fi one, you know, uh written, and half of the rough draft done. And that one's really fun, kind of a mix between Firefly if Firefly was set in the world of EVE Online, another video game, just kind of a brutal brutal video game. Um, so that that one's been really fun to write. I need to get back to that one at some point. And then I have a Kind of a midlife uh, crisis story set to the backdrop of superheroes. The main character is a popular superhero, and he's and, and, and trying to take some of the superhero cliches and tropes to the extreme, just just to have some fun. That one's just a one-off that I wrote. that's it's fun, but I'm I love all all science fiction, all all fantasy. I I read in basically every subgenre, so. So I'm all over the board there.
2: Well oh, cool. Well we encourage you to continue as much as possible because um uh Treason Properly turned out really well and really hoping that uh, that you get a book out of it as well because um I love the character, got the got a real feel um for a world in there that um that really uh that moved us and at the same time excited us and it was just a cool adventure tale met all the criteria for the award and we were really happy when we could um we could all agree on that one for for our number 1 grand prize winner so congratulations again
3: thanks so much for saying that man that uh coming from people that work at Bain that's that's like a dream come true to hear you say that and that's really dang cool so thank you connie that's Thanks. awesome
2: well the story is treason properly and it's by jj Cragen. it can be found at bain.com right now and it will be found in the 2019 uh free stories anthology at bain.com which is an ebook that you can download for free and you can read this um this great tale uh josh thank you so much for uh talking to us today about treason properly
3: my pleasure, Tony. That was that was fun. I love talking about this craft and thanks again for the award. That that was such a surreal day to you know, to meet Tony Weisskopf and have dinner with Jim and to meet half of my favorite authors of all time. That was I mean, that was just really cool. The whole the whole process was cool and Jim was so freaking gracious and you know. It's just been awesome. So thank you. Thank everybody there at the Bain for me. You guys are awesome. Will do.
1: Now we continue with the complete audiobook serialization of Son of the Black Sword by Larry Correa, book one in the saga of the Forgotten Warrior. After the War of the Gods, the demons were cast out and fell to the world. Mankind was nearly eradicated by the seemingly unstoppable beasts. Until the gods sent the great hero Ram Rowan to save them, he united the tribes, gave them magic, and drove the demons into the sea. But as centuries passed, the descendants of the great hero grew in number and power. They became tyrannical and cruel, and their religion nothing but an excuse for greed. The people rose up, and the surviving royalty and their priests were made castless, condemned to live as untouchables. The age of law had begun. Ashok Vidal has been chosen by a powerful ancient weapon to be its bearer. He is a protector, a member of an ancient military order of roving law enforcers. No one is more merciless in rooting out those who secretly practice the old ways as Ashok, but Ashok isn't who he thinks he is. And when he finds himself on the wrong side of the law, the consequences lead to rebellion, war, And perhaps transformation. Now, here is the latest entry in Larry Correa's Son of the Black Sword.
0: Chapter 33 The three of them rode through the forested hills south of Red Lake. The only sound was the slow clomp of their oxen's hooves and the creak of wagon wheels along the rocky trail. The ponderous animals were annoyingly slow to a man who could outrun a horse over short distances. But merchants without merchandise were suspicious, so they had purchased the wagon in Apura. Keita had not shown Ashok where he kept the notes hidden, but it was obvious he had a large supply of money. When asked, the keeper had cryptically told him that the rebellion had many wealthy backers, even some in the capital. Ashok assumed that was an aggrandizing lie, and the money was actually the reward from some horrible criminal endeavor. Keita was driving the team. Ashok sat on the bench next to him, and Thera was behind them, nervously watching the other travelers through slits in the canvas. They're crowding up ahead. This must be the checkpoint, Keita said. They couldn't see around the curve of the rocks until it was too late, and then they were stuck in a line of travelers waiting to have their papers stamped. This was an excellent spot to catch tax evaders, as there was no way to backtrack without being seen. With rocky hillsides and thick forests on both sides, it would take too long to turn a wagon around to flee. And there would certainly be at least one warrior somewhere nearby with a good vantage point watching for suspicious activity. Ashok may have looked like a merchant, but he certainly didn't feel like one. Here he was, sitting instead of marching or riding, dressed in a warm coat instead of cold armor, bathed and groomed, yet he was far more uncomfortable than at any point of his training. He'd rather be a tired, freezing, starving, exhausted acolyte than a comfortable liar. The checkpoint came into view. It was more of a shack, really, with some simple wooden barricades that could be dragged across the road. Normally, this out-of-the-way trail would only have a handful of low-status warriors garrisoned here, but several large tents had been set up in a field beyond the shack. At least a palton of troops were encamped here. Their flags bore the symbol of a yellow sun rising over a red mountain. These soldiers are from Thau. Ashok mused. This pass used to belong to Vidal. My old house must be even more vulnerable than I thought if they're losing ground to them. Yeah, you pretty much screwed up everything, Thera said. He felt bad about that. Their leaders had committed fraud, not the people. Harter, the silver-tongued bastard who he'd once thought of as a cousin, would find some way to return Vidal to its prior glory. Unless, of course, Ashok had the opportunity to take his life before then. Don't worry. These traveling papers are perfect we'll be fine, Thera assured them. It's taking too long, Kita said. Ashok called upon the heart of the mountain, this time concentrating on his sight. Distant objects came into clearer focus. Far ahead, the guards weren't just checking papers, they were also searching each wagon. Warriors were even crawling between the wheels and thumping the sides with a mallet, looking for hollowed out smuggling compartments. As he watched with the eyes of an eagle, a man was led off to the side. That one was dressed in cheap armor of a caravan guard and had a sword sheathed at his side. While several warriors watched, the sword was drawn and showed to an inspector. Satisfied that it was only steel, the guard put it away and was escorted back to his wagon. Of course, very few people would recognize Ashok on sight, but there was no way to disguise a terrifying black steel blade. He let go of the heart, and his eyesight returned to normal. They're looking for Angruvadal. So now the other houses know you escaped, Thera muttered. This complicates things. There was no way Harter would have asked their neighbors for help. But if word of his escape had gotten out, Asha couldn't guess at how huge a ransom could be demanded for the return of an ancestor blade. Worse, they could try to keep Angruvadal for themselves. Would it pick a worthy bearer from another house? Who knew? The inscrutable sword had picked a castless last time. Search complete. That caravan passed through the checkpoint. The line advanced. Their oxen had done this sort of thing so many times, they didn't even need to be motivated to obediently trudge forward. There was no place to turn the wagon without raising an alarm. Keita and Ashok had already been seen on the bench. If they got out and ran, they'd be spotted. Keita shot him a nervous glance. What are we going to do? He saw no other options. They were trapped. The soldiers were going to have to die. He'd been doing his best to avoid killing, but he was incapable of not fulfilling his orders. He couldn't let these warriors stop him. More law-abiding men were going to perish because of Ashok's existence. Anger flashed but it was aimed entirely at himself. He put one hand on Nangruvidal's hilt. Flickering images and bits of other men's memories filled his mind as the sword analyzed the terrain and decided on the most efficient way to kill everyone. He counted the visible soldiers, but then he found his mind wandering, using that number to guess at how many widows he was about to create and how many children would never know their fathers. What great deeds would these men have accomplished if they'd not had the misfortune of straying into his path? I'll take care of them, he whispered as he shook his head. It was not like him to lose focus. Ashok cursed himself for the momentary lapse and refocused on the impending mass murder he was about to commit. The hard part would be killing all of them before they could send for help. They wouldn't have a runner that could escape him, but if their Rizalda was smart... He'd have multiple messengers ready to go in different directions. Even as fast as Ashok was, he could only be in one place at a time. I only see a few horses. If anyone goes for those, try to slow them. We can't let them get away, or we'll have a whole legion descending on this pass. So much for your trying not to kill anybody, Kita said. Thank your false gods I have orders, because these soldiers' lives are worth far more than ours. Ashok snarled. Orders? Keita asked. The momentary distraction had made him slip. He'd said too much. Wait. Farah had begun searching through one of their cargo crates. I've got an idea. Stick with the plan. Try to act normal. Don't attack unless you have to. The sword could find no memory where hesitation was the best option. Please. She sounded desperate as she pulled two large clay jugs from a crate. Trust me, I can get us through. Ashok let go of his sword. Thera, where are you going? Wait, Keita demanded. But she'd already slipped off the back of the wagon. She landed on her knees and quickly rolled into a ditch. Thera scrambled forward, pushing the jugs ahead of her, and crawled into the brush. Her movements had been so smooth, it was doubtful that she'd been seen. She was dressed in earth tones, and even the false merchant's insignia was dark, so she blended in with the fall foliage. She's quick, Ashok admitted. I just hope she doesn't get hurt. Geeta sounded very concerned, and Ashok suspected it wasn't for himself. We'll do as she said, and wait. And Gruvedal didn't like it. The sword wanted to kill everyone now. Several tense minutes passed as more wagons were searched and more armed workers were examined. There were several castles walking behind one wagon, probably being transferred to a different house, and one of them must have done or said something that angered a soldier because the non-person was dragged from the line by his long, dirty hair and thrown down. The warrior gave him a savage beating with the stick he'd picked up from the side of the road until his arm got tired, and then he went back to his search, laughing. You see that, Ashok? That's your law. That's what you've been defending. There's more to it than that. Not really. Shut your self-righteous fishhole. I'm trying to concentrate. Since he couldn't see Thera through the densely packed trees, Ashok had sharpened his hearing. Farther up the hill, there was the scramble of boots, finding purchase on loose rocks, scratching, and then a thump of something being put down. He had no idea what Thera was up to. There was the whisper, like a knife leaving a sheath. Even with the heart of the mountain helping him, the next part was hard to discern, but there was a scraping noise, a fire starter. Then a tiny crackle. Something was burning. Another wagon passed through, and their obedient oxen lumbered forward. A female castless and two small children had gone to the barely conscious untouchable lying in the weeds and dragged him back onto the road so they wouldn't lose their place in line. The current wagon was filled with non-people clad in rags, so it was easy to search. It didn't take too long before it was their turn. A thou soldier approached their wagon with a spear over one shoulder and a bored expression on his face. Travelling papers? Of course, noble warrior, Keita proclaimed as he produced the forged documents from inside his merchant's coat. The warrior took the papers and scanned over the stamps. Wearing the insignia of a lowly junior neak, he couldn't have been more than sixteen years old. The thou tradition was to grow out long mustaches, but he barely had fuzzy hairs on his lip. Ashok knew that he would have to kill this one first. The warrior noticed Ashok's sheathed sword. Step down from there and come with me. Ashok didn't move. Forgive him, noble warrior. He means no offense. My bodyguard's not very bright and doesn't listen well. What do you need him for? Keita asked innocently. A special inspection that's of no concern to you, merchant. Come on, dummy, let's go. There was a clatter of rocks as Thera slid down the hill. Now she was heading straight for their camp. He didn't need the heart to help him hear what came next, because Thera began screaming at the top of her lungs. Raiders! Vidal raiders are coming! The camp erupted. Warriors sprang from their tents and ran toward the commotion. A risolder at the checkpoint Began shouting orders Thera stumbled out of the woods Screaming Fatal raiders coming down the hill Hundreds of them Hundreds The young warrior turned to see Ashok thought about Kicking a dent into his helmet But he waited as he'd been told There had to be more To Thera's plan than this The soldiers weren't stupid It would quickly become obvious That there were no raiders And then Boom Part of the hillside disappeared in a spreading cloud of dirt. Thunder rolled across the checkpoint. The young warrior jumped back and crashed against one of their wagon wheels, covering his face as bits of rock and bark rained from the sky. The oxen lurched forward, bellowing in consternation. What was that? The Nayak screamed. Boom. The second blast was just as big as the first, Whatever Thera had ignited on that hillside was rather impressive. Vidal battle wizards! Keita pointed at the hillside as debris pelted their canvas. Come to kill us all! A noxious gray smoke was rolling through the checkpoint. It burned the eyes and stung the throat. Within seconds, Ashok could barely see past the oxen. The warrior drew his sword and exclaimed, Get out of here! We'll stop these bastards! Keita snapped the ropes hard. Yeah! The oxen heaved and strained and the cart started forward. They rolled through the stinking haze. Soldiers were running to engage the imaginary foe. There were some swearing and exclamations as untouchables and warriors both had to get out of the way of their oxen before being trampled. Ashok smiled. Every man had his place, but 1,800-pound beasts of burden didn't care what anyone's social status was. Bowstrings strings thrummed as archers fired at shadows on the hillside. The Rizalda was doing a very good job organizing a counterattack against their imaginary foes. A merchant's wagon, not paying its toll, was the least of their worries. They were most of the way through the encampment before Thera reappeared and caught the back of their moving wagon. She sprang up onto the boards and ducked under the canvas. How long will that smoke last? Ashok asked. Not long. Peter thumped the oxen again, not that the frightened beasts needed much motivation to get away from the thunder. What was in the jugs? Ashok demanded. Fortress alchemy. Thera was breathless, flushed and excited. This mix looks like coal dust, but blows up like a volcano. Everything it sticks to burns and makes that nasty smoke. He'd figured as much. Ashok had never dealt with such things himself, but some of his brothers had. They'd faced terrible fire and thunder, capable of ripping through armor like it was cloth. Between their strange powers and their island's location, Fortress was the only place in Locke that had never bowed to the forces of the law. Witchcraft. Thera laughed. She was actually enjoying herself. It's ground-up stink rock and salts and bird shit. There's nothing magical about it. Witchcraft. He muttered to himself again. Keita saw Ashok's dark expression. Did you have to kill any of those innocent warriors today, Protector? No, he had to admit. No, I didn't. It wasn't until later that Ashok realized that Keita had called him by his old title. They'd not seen a warrior for hours. The roads had been empty as clouds had rolled in and a light rain had begun to fall. The slow bump and sway of their wagon gave them time to talk. So, you're the priest's bodyguard? Something like that, Thera answered. Ashok appreciated economy of speech as much as the next man, but she'd not answered his question. With nothing better to do and many long miles ahead of them, Ashok decided to try again. It seems strange to hire a woman to guard a man. She was still trying to be evasive, There's more to keeping someone safe than swinging a sword. I know my way around, and I know the right people. Meaning you willingly associate with criminal scum. Ashok meant it more as a statement than an accusation, but Thera stiffened. She was sitting next to Keita on the driver's bench. It was hard to tell, since every time he'd seen her, she'd been wearing a cloak, hood, and scarves. But she appeared to be tall and strong for a woman, But even then, a very strong woman could be physically overpowered by an average man. Keita was a priest, and priests were supposed to be important. This rebellion couldn't have lasted as long as it did if they were stupid. Do you have any other witchcraft? So anything you don't understand is witchcraft? Then I've nothing of note to you, Inquisitor. The way she spat the word left no doubt as to her feelings about that order. Their methods were harsh and unforgiving, but there was no room for error when dealing with treason or forbidden magic. I was never an inquisitor. But you killed people on their behalf. Ashok didn't dignify that with a response. Of course he had. That had been his obligation. She's more dangerous than she looks, Kida supplied. And I don't just mean the alchemy. He couldn't tell if Keita was complimenting her because women were supposed to enjoy that sort of attention, and though the priest had tried to hide it, Ashok had seen earlier that he was genuinely concerned for her. Or maybe Keita was being sincere, and she actually was dangerous. Ashok decided to push her as a test. She has no real magic and can't fight. What good is she? Ashok was riding in the back with the cargo, so for a moment couldn't tell if it was the oxen or the woman who snorted, and then he decided it was the woman. I'll tell you, Ashok, I like to let the well-muscled fools like you stand there and hack each other to bits while I hang back and look non-threatening. I prefer surprise. Thera spun and lashed out with one hand. The knife flashed, flicking end over end. It would have stuck into the barrel next to him, making for an impressive display, except Ashok effortlessly snatched the knife out of the air before it could reach its target. Thera was surprised by the inhuman reflexes. Her mouth hung open, and that expression gradually turned into a frown. So much for getting the drop on the likes of you. He tested the balance of the little blade. It was more of a spike, sharpened on each end, and heavy enough to cause a serious puncture wound at close range. He wouldn't want to catch one in the skull. Very nice. I've been told the warriors of the ice coast like to play games with these. Then he tossed it back. Thera caught it and quickly hid the spike inside one of her voluminous sleeves. More practical than darts and keeps the forts free of vermin. A running rat is a much harder target than a man's throat. So you were born of the warrior caste. No house sent their women off to fight unless they were extremely desperate, but that didn't mean the women didn't know how to. It fell to the warrior caste's women to protect their lands from raiders when most of the men were off raiding other houses. So Thera would have at least had had some training, and depending on the house's traditions and her teachers, she might even be useful in a battle. Good. I didn't say I couldn't fight, I'm just not an idiot about it. The last time some bandits threatened our good keeper here, I pretended to be his wife. And scared out of my wits, I let their leader drag me off by the hair thinking he'd have his way with me. But it doesn't matter how much stronger you are when the knife you didn't see cuts off your cock. True, Keita shuddered. Seeing that unnerved me, and I was a butcher. Then we dropped the other two while they were distracted by his screaming. Thera proclaimed, obviously proud of her work. If my enemy sees me coming, then I've not done my job. In combat, you needed to work with your strengths and avoid your weaknesses. Thera was pragmatic. Ashok approved of such philosophy. You must have belonged to a house once. Why would you leave it to become a lawbreaker? If I wanted to be interrogated, I'd turn myself over to the Inquisition. I'm sure they'd enjoy that but you don't seem naive enough to believe in these fools' false gods. False! Keita sputtered. They were real enough to guide us to you in time to save your ungrateful life? thera laughed. Calm down, Keeper, you'll spook the oxen. She turned back again, this time with a malicious gleam in her eye. I'm not insulted, but as for the forgotten, Keita will talk your ears off on the subject if you let him, but I pay him no mind. I don't believe in such things. Perhaps it was the flick of her eyes to the side as she said it, or something else that gave it away. But she was lying to him. He had interrogated far too many criminals not to sense it. He just wasn't sure if she was lying to him or to herself on this particular topic. So he let it go. And why join with the rebels? I'm not inclined to believe in things I can't see with my own eyes, but this invisible God's Rebellion has money to spend, and money buys power. And what does power buy? Revenge. Then Thera paused, scowling, as if she'd realized she'd said far too much. She turned her attention back to the road. Keita was studying her, as well, with a strange look on his face. And those were emotions that Ashok couldn't decipher. But Kita composed himself and said, Personally, I believe the best thing power can buy is freedom. What do you say, Ashok? With that sword of yours, you've got more power than any of us. What do you hold dear enough to purchase with it? Ashok had no answer.
1: That was another entry in the complete audiobook serialization of Son of the Black Sword by Larry Correa. And that's it for the podcast. Thanks to Audible.com and to podcast theme composer Ruth Judkowitz, And a rugged medieval Cat5 Ethernet connection to the fantasy realms of his favorite novels. Plus thanks, praise, and plaudits to J.J. Cragen, author of Bane Fantasy Award-winning story, Treason Properly. Please join us next time here at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy And keep
2: reaching for the stars.